0: Welcome to Conversations with Chamomile. This is your host, Jacob Lyles. Join me as we explore life together. Hi everybody, just a quick intro to my next podcast. Uh, today I have on uh, my friend Matt Harl, and he, we are talking about his conversion into Judaism. Um, Matt is a an artist and uh, he comes from a, a long time period uh, of not practicing, um, and we discuss what he what drew him draws him to Judaism, how um, it affects his uh, practice as an artist and a musician, and also um, just what the what the stages were that um, allowed him to reapproach uh, traditional religion after a long time away. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Matt. Thanks. All right, we're recording. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Matt.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: So this is part of our um, Journeys into uh, Religion uh, series here on Conversations with Chamomile. So maybe we could start by sharing with us sort of how you would describe your current position in the world spiritually.
1: Oh, wow. That's that's a, a complicated place to start.
0: Um, just get a sense for like where, where you're at now.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I think I am a, um, lifelong, uh, ambivalent person. So, uh, regardless of, uh, where I am at any given moment, um, there's usually some level of ambivalence there. Um, and, uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. It's actually something I've uh, come to appreciate. Um, So about five years ago now, I converted to Judaism. Um, And there are many reasons why, um, and I'm sure we'll get to those. Um, But one of the reasons is that I think Ambivalence is okay in Judaism. Um, So, by that, I guess I mean that Judaism is built on discussion and argument and um, a kind of back and forth, um, you know, uh, across time um, in the present and um and i think it's okay to be ambivalent uh within that it's uh, a matter of being open to the argument and open to the conversation so i think judaism is a conversation more than it is in some ways more than than it is a faith exactly Hmm.
0: so what degree of faith does one need to join judaism like yeah.
1: Well, uh, I'll offer a disclaimer in that, um, I may not be the best spokesperson for this, but, sure. um, but I will give my opinion. Um, I don't think faith is necessary, um, in Judaism. Um, I think people have it, um, but it's not a precondition, uh, I think, um, I know a lot of people who spend a lot of time wrestling with the question of belief, um, in Judaism. And I think that wrestling, I, um, you know, the, the word Israel means wrestling with God and, um, Israel is, is the name, uh, that, the people got uh, at the point that Jacob was wrestling with, um, with the divine being, whatever that may have been. Um, he was given that name and that's the name that the, his descendants um, also have. So wrestling is built into the religion. Um, so I think wrestling with faith is, for me, it's almost a precondition uh for for being a jew um which i think is maybe why um there's such a crossover between judaism and buddhism i think of buddhism as also being a uh belief system that is not firmly rooted in faith exactly it's um it's more pragmatic than that
0: yeah you know th- When you were uh, talking about this idea of wrestling with God, um, it brings to mind for me as a Christian relating to Judaism, I primarily think of the Old Testament books. Um, That's my primary um, source for for Judaism. And I think most Christians and, um, you know, between like the story of the Exodus um, or the poetry of Job or the Psalms, there's a lot of this. Uh, people questioning God and, and saying like uh you know having faith in God but also um you know wrestling with the problem of what we call theodicy which is why does God allow us to struggle and to suffer in this world. And um and I think some of the most profound uh meditations on that question are contained in the uh in the the Jewish books. Um mm-hmm. and uh so that makes uh, a, a lot of sense to me i think it's, it's sort of uh the fact that the the nation comes to be named israel like the whole people um sort of take on this struggle with god i think is a uh, um sort of emblematic of the faith
1: yeah um in terms of literature um this will also be controversial um wait are you going to we'll say something
0: controversial every <laughs> every every time Matt?
1: yeah pretty much pretty much um, i think in in the you know the torah is central, um, which is the Old testament um, but in some ways even more central is the Talmud, um, which is the centuries of commentary on the torah. And I say this because uh, it's that commentary that uh, wrestling with the Torah, in this case, um, trying to tease out its meaning and um, and sort of eternally um, question it and look for answers in it. Um, that history of, of, of uh, arguing with a book is what Judaism is really based in. Um, so I, I'm no, in no way uh, diminishing the importance of the Torah, but I am saying that the Talmud actually tells you almost more about the soul of Judaism than, um, than the Torah does. And um, I'm gonna just tell one short story from the Talmud that maybe illustrates um, what I'm talking about. It's a famous one about an oven of achni And a group of rabbis are together um, talking about this particular oven and whether it's kosher or not. And um, there's an argument about it, of course, because there's always an argument about everything. And um, one of the rabbis, uh, Eliezer, um, says um, that, if I'm getting this right, says that it is kosher. Um, the other rabbis argue with him. And he says, if I'm right, um, let, and, and I'm I'm amending this, let God strike this tree uh, down. And um, immediately the tree is struck down by a bolt of lightning. Um, and he says, see, I'm right. And the other rabbis continue to argue and say, well, um, just because, you know, that tree got struck down doesn't mean you're right. And, um, you know, let's say the next step was Eliezer says, well, if I'm right, let this river reverse its course. And immediately the river reverses its course. And he says, see, I'm right, you know. God is saying, I'm right. Um, and uh, the other rabbis say, well, that doesn't really prove anything. Just because the river went the other way, you know, that doesn't mean anything. Um, so Eliezer says, okay, am I right? And um, and the voice of God appears saying, Eliezer right about this oven, you know. He's just right. And um, the other rabbis say, well, it was given to us in the Torah that we are responsible for interpreting, you know, the, the law. And we say that the oven is not kosher. Um, and that's our right. And... Uh, um God gives up, and um, God says, he laughs, or God laughs, I won't say he, um, and says, my children have defeated me, and um, I probably got that story completely wrong, but that's the basic gist of it, And, um, and what it means to me is that what people do on earth, and how they interpret the law, and how they... Um, come to consensus about what's right and what's wrong is what is crucial. Mm. Um, you know they're working as best as they can to um, to work in accordance with uh, the divine will. But when it comes down to it, our decisions are our decisions, and um, and uh, and that's how god or the divine essence wants things to be
0: yeah well that's a um a very fascinating story matt and uh uh yeah i can see the the, the, certainly the spirit of argumentation uh coming through there um and uh i have to chew on that one a little bit it's uh it's a strange (laughs) it's a strange story um yeah but but now that now we sort of mapped out where you are, I was hoping we could uh, maybe start at the beginning and, and trace how you, you got here. Um, It's, it's a somewhat unusual place. I think I don't hear about many adult male uh, Jewish converts. Um, So so I think this journey is, is a, is a fascinating one to me. Um, So how did you, how were you raised in, in uh, as far as spiritual uh, traditions go?
1: I was raised a Presbyterian and um, I was very involved in my church when I was a kid, Um, you know, in the usual youth groups and all of that. But I also, um, there's a Presbyterianism, I think probably other denominations have a kind of bicameral system they have the elders and they have the deacons the elders uh, essentially decide policy the deacons are more the kind of people people they do the outreach and you know that kind of deal with the congregation on that level um so i was a deacon and i was you know the youngest deacon that they'd ever had um and uh you know it it meant the whole experience was very rich for me. I remember really feeling in contact with um with God um when I was a kid. It was a very strong relationship and um yet um as I got older, I started to um to question it more and uh pick it apart um ultimately deciding <clears throat> that i i think i've never felt that i was an atheist but certainly feeling that i was deeply agnostic
0: about, about what uh, time in your
1: life was that That was about high school yeah. you know end of high school maybe um and that's basically how it stayed um for the next, let's see, um, the next 30 years, perhaps.
0: And so when Uh, you began to pick apart your beliefs, did that coincide also with uh, ceasing the practice?
1: uh, Yeah, it did. Um, You know, around the time I went away to college, I think I, you know, that was pretty much the end of of that for me. Mm Mm-hmm um which i'm imagining is not an uncommon story for people um but um and i was you know comfortably in that agnostic zone um you know really until fairly recently Mm. um but i think i think that um it's always been there that connection but it's just for years, became sublimated in other um, other things.
0: Yeah, you say you're you're an, you an agnostic and not an atheist, so there has to be some. Uh, it sounds like there's some openness to something beyond the material there, but not. Uh, but you're no longer clinging to a particular belief system at that.
1: Uh, yeah. So I would say. <clears throat> The main thing that uh, held that feeling for me in the in those years um, was my role as an artist or my life as an artist. Um, And let's see how to describe that. I would not have said that in any way I'm a religious artist. you know and and I, I in that time period i would never have said that um but um i've always had a feeling that there was a conversation going on um i wouldn't identify who i was having the conversation with um but it always felt like <clears throat> when i was and it still does um Feel like when I'm making something, I'm making it as part of a conversation. Um, it's a it's a statement in an ongoing dialogue. Um, and you know, as I say, I didn't identify what that was for a long time, and I I think I still don't in the sense that um, I think identifying it is. To betray it on some level, Um, you know, perhaps it relates to the reluctance, especially in Judaism, um, to depict the divine in any in any way. Um, And I think that that's because to do that is to sort of nail it down to say this is what this is. Um, and it denies that thing, the divine, or whoever I was having a conversation with in my studio. It denies it um, the possibility of growth and movement and, and and becoming the the you know possibility of becoming. So I pretty actively did not. Define what it was that I was relating to but I felt mm. that sense of relation
0: yeah, um, I've, I've often felt like the proper way to approach uh, a mystical religious path is um, with a question mm-hmm, like if, mm-hmm. you, if, if you if you have an answer, then you're not going to find you're not going to progress um, Because whatever God is uh, He's not small enough or um, simple enough to be contained within a simple human conception of him. So if you if absolutely There's, a, there's a, a saint in my tradition, uh, Gregory Anissa, who talks about Moses ascending the mountain into the cloud as being the symbol for man's approach to God. Like we're walking up the mountain into the cloud of, of, of darkness. Um, and as we go, we, we have to sort of let go of the conceptual understandings we have of God in search of the reality of it, um, which, which is, yeah. al- which is always, um, a, a process of, of apathetic, uh, a letting go, um, for him.
1: Yeah, the, um, the name that, uh, you know, when, when Moses asks God's name, um, God responds, um I am what I am or A Asher a um which I think is the most profound name of the divine. Um mm. because it's basically a tautology. It's not an answer. It's answering with um with being. Um and so you know it's a, it's an evolving. Um, it, you can, you can tr- translate it either as "I am what I am" or "I will be what I will be." It's, it's ambiguous um, what the actual translation is. So, it's essentially saying "I am being." Hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it it invites it invites the the um the inquiry i would say mm-hmm. um, absolutely as opposed to something like a zeus or a, a bale i mean Baal means i think boss uh zeus i'm not sure what it means but it's like uh, some guy playing ball yeah you, know, you can know everything you, there is to know about zeus but um it, there it's it, it's it's a much longer process to uh you can you can never contain uh, he who is or i am who i am uh like those that god is uh beyond our our comprehension um but we do relate to him um you know also your process reminds me uh i just want to throw this out there christopher alexander is a famous architect and he always described his architecture projects as um relating to god or a search for god which i just always thought was profound
1: yeah Um, yeah um and it's interesting when i talk about my experience with um divinity and again i avoid the term god usually because um i don't think of what i'm relating to as an entity or as a singular entity i think of it more in that that sense of um being and possibility—it's um, an apprehended—and um, well, it's an apprehended um, spirit that infuses things, but is not definable as a singularity. Um, so when I when I try and talk about it, um, I often talk about it in terms of landscape and in terms of architecture, which is interesting. Um, Landscape, um, you know, one way I've talked about my art and also talk about um, relationship to the divine is being in a landscape and moving through that landscape and rounding corners and something is revealed that is, Different from what I just was experiencing, um, and will also be replaced by the next thing I'm experiencing. It's all one landscape, but it's um, it's tr- constantly transforming. And with art, I've always thought, you know, I, I'm putting flags in that landscape at various points, and I'm saying, I'm here, and then I'm here. Uh, on the next stop, and I've been all these places where there are flags, but it it's not um I can't hold it all at once. I experience it sequentially, but it is a um a total landscape and the same thing with with um with architecture i've I've often felt that it's a it's a a building with many rooms and you move from room to room, and you have, and you can hold that room in your mind when you're in that room. Um, or maybe you only hold part of the room, and as you look around, the part you were just looking at is starting to fade, but you're now looking at another part, and, um, and the same moving room to room. So in other words, your experience, is always evolving in relationship to this building or this landscape um it's not necessarily changing um but your relationship to it is changing it's always evolving hmm. so um yeah that's uh, i would say that's the biggest piece in how i moved from an agnostic artist um, to someone actually engaged with um with a religion um and a belief
0: system which no. still
1: surprises me that i did that but
0: uh i i am um, that that sense of surprise i think is uh can be a common one i think for uh people who convert to a religion as well like i i often feel that way it's like if you would have told me three years ago i'd be um an orthodox christian today i'd be kind of shocked it's like i don't know it's like a big turning point in my life and i've I've heard other people express that too where they're like oh i didn't expect i'd be this but it just felt right or um it it was like where my inquiry led me um yeah
1: that's exactly that's exactly how it is for me um you know i at some point i realized all my questions were sitting squarely within this tradition um, that in a sense I had converted without
0: deciding to um, I realized that's so, just where I was so how did you encounter that like you know how how did that next phase of your of, of your um, of your progression go
1: so I've lived in a, a Jewish family um, for quite a while. Um, I, I met my wife, my now wife, um, in, uh, 1988 and, um, you know, we didn't get married for about 10 years. Um, but we, I became involved with her family. Um, you know, sort of progressively more and more involved with the family. And, um, you know, so I participated in the holidays and, you know, I, I was in a Jewish context uh, without being Jewish. Um, And, you know, some of it made sense to me and some of it didn't. Um, I've always had trouble with some central uh, features of religion. I don't know what i think of prayer for instance Um, the idea of faith makes me uncomfortable Um, so there are a number of ways in which i didn't quite connect but then there were other ways that that really resonated with me Um, i would credit well both of my wife's parents um, for having A relationship to religion and mysticism and the divine that really resonated with me Um, in particular um, uh, my wife who uh, her name's deborah or deb um, in particular deb's mother uh, who i feel we have very close um sensibility in terms of in terms of belief in terms of um our relationship to the divine um and so as i got to know them more and i got to know more about what they thought and read and um, how they related to judaism i i became more and more involved um So you know, I can go more into that um, if you want, but um, but basically, it was uh, just a uh, slow identification and and grew.
0: Their relationship to the divine appealed to. Did it resonate with like how you were relating to the divine up up till now? appeal um
1: you. yeah and so i wouldn't have said that i would define it as relating to the divine at that point it was really still about what happened in my studio and how i felt about that but um uh, deb's mom in particular is very immersed in kabbalah and um, in thinking about jewish mysticism um, and that became a sort of poetic point of entry for me into into Judaism. Um, both of them are also very interested in um, sort of neo Hasidic uh, thinking, um, which is a whole ball of wax because um, when people talk about Hasidism, it can mean many different things to many different people. Um, when I say neo-Hasidic, um, it has to do with um, a movement that really, no, well, it it's been going on for quite a while, but it's an attempt to reconnect to the um, the sources um, back in the 17th century sources of Hasidism, which um, Hasidism was essentially a liberation theology in a way, um, mm. initially. It was um, reclaiming spirit, spiritualism to, um, for the general person away from the uh, rabbis. Um, it was essentially saying anyone could have a religious experience um and so it was it was actually a fairly radical um belief system initially and it has great stories and um mm. you know it's a it's a i connected with that um that kind
0: of line of thinking that lineage so it seems like the, the more like poetic or mystical uh uh, segments of Judaism were the ones that were really speaking to you, right? Like Kabbalah or this Neo Hasidism. Like they, they're both, like you mentioned, the poetry of Kabbalah. Um, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, that's fair to say. It's. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't say that I believe in Kabbalah uh, as a, um, you know, a literal system. Um, I think there are people who do. um, And uh, I'm not really one of those people. I think it's a, it's a poetic system that allows, uh, allows me to organize my feelings about um, the divine, about spiritual uh, things um in a rich way it 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 um allows me to generate meaning mm-hmm. um which i think is you know and in terms of what you were saying before it's it's a system that allows me to question um and it's very open ended and it it has uh you know kind of a beautiful uh well let me tell you one thing there's uh there are many different types of kabbalah i appreciate um, it
0: because you know as a as an observer i've heard this term kabbalah uh frequently and it has this air of mystique and mystery and uh yeah you know you know exoticness about it it's always um you know uh pretty odd people that are into kabbalah so i appreciate uh, a little bit of <laughs> insight into it
1: well i'm I, I I guess I'm one of those odd people. Um, there are a lot of different approaches to it. Um, it was there was a kind of popularization of it. Uh, not you know maybe it still exists. Um, I know Madonna was very into uh, Kabbalah, and there was a kind of a it almost took on a kind of self-help uh, angle in a in a certain way. It was a kind of pragmatic version of Kabbalah. Um, and i don't know that much about that um in the you know just a really quick uh history of kabbalah um in the uh 12th century um there was a a, 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 a you know kind of right on the the cusp of the the 12th and 13th centuries there's a a book called the zohar um which is a very dense um very dense uh book it's an essentially an exegesis on the torah um, it moves very slowly over the course of um well it was just um a new translation came out by a man named Dan, daniel matt um through stanford and it's you know 12 volumes Plus, I think there are a couple extra uh, sort of apocryphal volume volumes. Um, so it moves very slowly through a history, sort of a, an exegesis of the Torah, um, and it's also a story of, of uh, a group of rabbis wandering together in the in the second century. Um, and they are, it's a dialogue and they're talking about this and that, but it's in very, dis, very, um, dense mystical terms. Um, very hard to kind of tease out the meaning. Um, but very beautiful, very beautiful. There are passages that are just, you know, gorgeous. Um, so that's, that's kind of the point at which Kabbalah, um, became widely available and even that it's it's available in a, a narrow way but it was it was written down it wasn't just an oral tradition at that point um later in the um 16th century um and an, another development uh, which is known as lurianic kabbalah um because of isaac Luria, who was the um originator of it. Um, that developed, and there's a, there's some beautiful um, kind of uh, origin stories involved in that. Um, and I'll just briefly say that um, one of the origin stories, which is very close to a kind of Gnostic belief in, in some ways, um, has it that uh, divinity, and this is a very abridged version, divinity was contained in vessels and um, the vessels were shattered. And the pieces of the, the shards of the vessels fell to earth along with the sparks of divinity that were contained in the vessels. And um, our purpose in the world is to move through uh our lives looking for those sparks of divinity with many of which are covered still by the the shards of the vessels so there are sparks of divinity in everything everywhere in the world and and it's up to us to uncover those sparks and reunite them with the sort of primordial divine Mm. and um that's just one example of the poetry of the, of Kabbalah that really resonates with me. That idea that we're on a quest, in a way, to find um, to find the divine in our world, hmm. and uh, and that's really what to me what it's about.
0: Now, um, I know that the process of converting to Judaism. Uh, isn't easy uh, like the explicit step i mean anyone can read be inspired by jewish books and thinkers Uh, what was the impetus for you to decide to you know take the step to formalize or to 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 make the leap to become an official jew
1: well you're right it's not uh, traditionally uh, meant to be easy um the uh the this sort of um, story, as it usually goes, is you're supposed to, if you want to convert, you you approach a rabbi and you say, I want to become a Jew. And the rabbi is supposed to tell you, no, that's not, you know, you don't want to become a Jew, um, for one thing. Jews are oppressed. Why would you want to be a Jew? You know, we're constantly driven out of our homes. We're constantly um you know it's it's not a life that you would want for yourself. So no. Um you're supposed to come back again, you know, after you've been discouraged that time, you're supposed to overcome that discouragement, go back and ask to convert again and uh and once again you're supposed to be told no. Um, it's too hard. You know, it's too hard to be a Jew. You don't want to be a Jew. So then if you come back the third time, then the conversation begins about how to convert. So it's, uh, it's kind of different from a lot of religions in that way, and that it, it really is kind of um,
0: anti-evangelical in a way you know um, it, it's also it's like the opposite of evangelical christianity that will approach you on the street and say um you know accept jesus christ as your personal lord and savior and be saved or something like that yeah um, where, no, they, it, where they're like <clears throat> make, where they're making christians i suppose by the dozens but those, then those people go off and they never maybe do anything with that religion again uh but they're just eager to get their their numbers up um yeah <clears throat> so in in terms of me
1: um that didn't happen to me. I didn't have to ask three times. in fact, my rabbi uh embraced the um the idea of me converting um were you around that rabbi for a while? yeah, I had been um <clears throat> uh yeah before converting, I'd been pretty involved in the synagogue here um in Beacon, New York, which is where I live. Um, and I was friends with the rabbi before he was the rabbi of that congregation. So, you know, I kind of found my way into the congregation, uh, Beacon Hebrew Alliance, um, through him and, uh, and, you know, he was basically my teacher. Um, I've heard stories of people, um, converting. And having to, you know, have a mastery of the Talmud and, uh, you know, Hebrew, and um, I, I got a, I got an easy ride in that I didn't have to prove um, a mastery of those things. Um, so I'm still, I'm still learning. Um, what I did have to do is, uh, you have to go before a um, it's called a Beit Din, um, which means a, a, basically a house of judgment. Um, it's a panel of, usually a panel of rabbis, who um, who ask you a lot of questions and basically try and understand you know, why you're why you're, and um, and then they decide, you know, whether whether you should be allowed to convert or not. So I did have to go in front of a, in front of the bait,
0: Dean. So why did, um, and, and why did you decide to explicitly cross the, cross the divide instead of just, I don't know, hanging out? <coughs> well, um,
1: I, I it's think kind I of a big step,
0: right? Especially as an agnostic. Like, like, I mean, mean, I mean, you know, you used to be like a normal guy, like, you know, a normal modern person that's just has no religious affiliation. Um, And you can be interested in Judaism. Sure, that's not weird, but it's kind of weird to go ahead and, like, become religiously affiliated.
1: It Um, is. It is. Um, And it's still weird to me, honestly. I haven't gotten over the sense that it's weird. Um, I think what happened was Two things. One, well, I've mentioned the, my sort of perpetual ambivalence. Um, I, I am, uh, I, I am very interested in thresholds, in um, mm-hmm. liminal experiences, and I guess that's also in some ways why I'm attracted to Kabbalah because it has a lot to do with those kinds of experiences. Um, so that has its pluses and minuses. Uh the plus for me is I like to always be perched on the threshold between here and there, um, and participate in some way in both things, but there's a level on which it's not committing to either thing. Um, and I've always been that way. Um, and I think what happened was I realized that I was already uh, essentially converted in terms of my thinking, how it fit in with um, Judaism generally. Um, and I think I felt like, okay, I could always be on the fence about this. I could always be ambivalent. Maybe I should take a step into something and say, and, and really kind of claim that, that place, um, it helped that my sense of Judaism is that it's a place where questioning, doubt, um, ambivalence are actually positive qualities. So it's, and you know, that had a lot to do with why I felt like I was already there, but I, um, I think I felt like, okay, this is a place I can be where I don't have to abandon my, um, my nature. Um, I think that was a big part of it, really, is, mm-hmm. is just realizing I could be me there.
0: Yeah, it sounds like they have room for you to be yourself without you having to fit into some sort of pattern that wouldn't fit you uh, or, or leave some of yourself behind. Um, Right.
1: I think I would have had trouble going somewhere that um, I had to be um, um, sort of I'm trying to think of the right word, not single minded, but um, uncomplicatedly accepting of things
0: um, where I had
1: to sort of banished out on some level um, yeah, there,
0: there, i think there's a continuum of like rigidity of various religions and um yeah the uh it, it sounds like uh judaism is perhaps uh on the f- closer to the end of the less rigid uh religions where there's seems to be a lot of room for inquiry um again like I, I know i've known a lot of atheist jews right who are wrestling with god but currently winding up on the no side of the ledger um and then all the way over to i I think there's um, some very uh dogmatic um uh versions of christianity where uh i think they'll tell you exactly what you have to believe uh to be part of it and and they have sort of a scripture verse for for every question you'll have and and that's that needs to be where the uh conversation ends um, like i grew up jehovah's witness which is like that like there's no oh, room okay. for yeah. any inquiry at all um I wound up somewhere in, in a middle ground where to be Orthodox christian uh, you have to be able to uh, say the the creed um at your baptism and understand that in some way um, but it has more room for diversity of opinion than um than like jehovahs witnesses did uh and it felt to me like i could be orthodox without leaving myself behind um at the time which which was necessary uh for me to to, to make that leap myself um yeah i
1: should uh, interject here that i'm judaism is a big tent
0: yeah.
1: um there are a lot of different ways to be jewish and i'm talking about my way and um it's it's you know if you were looking at it is you know liberal or conservative i'm way on the liberal side of the spectrum um my affiliations uh, i don't have an affiliation but my affinities maybe that's a better word um are definitely with the um the sort of radical mystical side of things um there are very orthodox um areas of Judaism that are, you know, it would be hard to describe it as being, you know, like much of what I'm describing would be rejected there. And, um, I would not be considered, well, for one thing, being a convert, I wouldn't be considered a Jew, um, probably by, by certain more Orthodox, uh, um, areas of Judaism. And I, I certainly wouldn't be considered uh, a proper Jew. Mm. If they accepted me at all, I would be considered to be, um, you know, uh, mistaken. Um, so there's a wide spectrum. And, and I, I, I need to say that because I'm not speaking for everyone
0: yeah, that's that's worth worth mentioning. It's uh it's easy yeah. I think for people to see the diversity of the tradition they're closest to, but then kind of not understand that diversity and traditions that they're not as close to. Um, but so it's worth mentioning that there's a lot of diversity within yeah. Jewish practice and communities. Um, as as well, like there's different ways of being Jewish. Um, you see the guys Absolutely. with with extreme dress codes. Um, in New York, and then. You see, um, you know, people like yourself uh, who are more into the mystical side of things and everything in between. Oh, I you suppose. know,
1: the, um, the people you're talking about, um, the Hasids uh, in New York, uh, for instance, but um, all over, are very connected to Kabbalah. Mm. Um, and, and Hasidism is, is very deeply rooted in Kabbalah. So I don't have a claim on that. Um, If I were to, you know, my own opinion about it is that classitism over the centuries became much more orthodox. Um, It became much more rigid in its belief uh, to the point where there's very little room for divergence from, from, you know, it's kind of what you were talking about with Essentially, fundamentalism exists in every religion. Yeah. You can, you know, you can be a fundamentalist Jew just as much as you can be a fundamentalist Christian. So Hasidism essentially became more and more rigid over time. And again, this is my opinion. Um, now, when you think of Hasidism, you think of the ultra Orthodox.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, originally, it was a lot. Like, like I think I mentioned, it was a lot more of a—I don't know if you would call it a liberation theology—but it was uh, about um, about claiming spirituality for everyone, and it was a, it was, it was a freeing and celebratory and ecstatic religion at the you know or, or sect at the time, and it was in many ways suspect by the rest of uh you know by more orthodox judaism at that point uh it was kind of a suspect
0: um movement yeah i think every religious tradition has this like this um struggle or this tension between the uh like the mystical and like the and the need to codify or or define um it's like there's always like this this sort of breathing between uh you know I think there's periods where the religion will try to like define things, get it under control and then the mystical, the mystics like break free um and then like and then like, there's there's always this interplay of these two forces uh I think um Yeah, I is- think
1: even outside of religion that's true, you know. Mm-hmm. It's uh and it's understandable. It's a complicated, scary world and mm-hmm. it's uh embracing change and uh You know, I I certainly wouldn't claim that I always am in that place, but um, embracing change and uncertainty is very. is very scary and it's a hard thing to do. Um, And again, um, you know, I I cling to habit just like anyone else. I cling to, you know, the things that I feel are known quantities. I just believe that that's not where you find the divine. I think you find the divine in the questions, not in the answers, you know, like like you were saying earlier. I'm I took that step of conversion, but it started me in a direction or or it continued a direction I, I felt like I was already moving in. But, um, I'm hoping that I never find the answer to that process. Um,
0: so it it reminds me a little bit like marriage, like when you're young and looking ahead to like, who am I going to marry? You think like you you can kind of conceive of that as like being an endpoint, like, uh, I'm going to get married and start a family. And then I think once you get married, you realize, oh, now there's the whole rest of my life to. And other things to look forward to and all, all yeah. that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, you know, you choose, I guess you sort of choose your journeys uh, more than you do um, you know, tr- choose an identity. The identity is evolving. So um I spent a lot of time uh trying different things out and trying to find a place in Judaism that felt really um like home um <clears throat> i was a member of the uh my synagogue's cemetery committee um we have our own cemetery and so the cemetery committee deals with upkeep and all of that with uh, with the cemetery and there was this conference coming up um which is uh if i can get the full title. It's the, um, annual Jewish cemetery and Hever Kadisha conference. And I'll get to what a Hever Kadisha is in a minute. Um, and nobody wanted to go. Um, so I said, I'll go. Sounded interesting. Um, I'd heard the term Hever Kadisha before, but I, I didn't really know much about it. Um, and I went to uh, Maryland, uh, to Bethesda, where the conference was. And literally, as soon as I walked through the door, um, I was convinced that I was in the right place. Um, part of that's because the, um, the head of the organization, Kavod V'Nichum, who put on the um, conference, uh, Kavod V'Nichum means honor and comfort, um he the the david zinner who's the head of that organization was there kind of greeting people and i immediately liked him i had a good feeling about him so that conference which i guess was about three days four days um was really life-changing for me it um it it opened my eyes to an entirely new world of uh of judaism um and it uh introduced me to a bunch of people who i just immediately felt comfortable around so Kadisha means holy society and hevrakadisha is the group that cares for the dead and for mourners um you know most specifically It can also be a group that deals with people who are sick. Um, And the history of Hebra-Kadishas goes, that is uh, the known history of Hebra-Kadishas goes back to, again, somewhere in the um, 15th century, 16th century. Um, Often, if a Jewish community was um, establishing itself, the first thing that they would do is set up a Hebra Kedisha uh, before they would establish a synagogue, before they would do anything else. And the reason for that is people die. Um, you know, you need to have some way to, um, to deal with people who die in your community more than you need a place to study, more than you need anything else. So um you know most simply um uh, kaba um have two functions uh, shmirah and tahara um those are the two main functions um shmirah is that um a body needs to be um guarded from death until burial um shmirah means guarding basically And so 24 hours or, or, you know, 24 hours a day around the clock, there needs to be somebody who is um, attentive to that person who has died. Um, So that's one function. Um, Tahara is the actual preparing of the body for burial. um, And it involves both a physical cleansing and a spiritual cleansing. And I won't go into the details, but um <clears throat> the rituals are extremely beautiful, I think. Um what I've come to understand about Hevra Kadisha is it's mostly about life. It's not about death, per se. It is about death, but it's in its um honoring of the dead, in its um celebration of the lives of the people who've died it's ultimately a celebration of life Um, and it's a celebration with the understanding that we'll all die at some point and it's a an embrace of that fact and um, oddly produces empathy and compassion for um, for people that you know it's a powerful uh, sort of engine of compassion. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's become a very important thing for me. I founded the Hevra Kadisha in my synagogue, and I'm you know kind of guiding
0: that. And um, yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, it's inspiring me to uh, want to get more involved with with our burial society. Uh, uh, I, I, I like there's something about interacting with the dead that does remind you that you're it does something good with how you conceptualize your aliveness i think like um it reminds you not to take it for granted um and and it and it calls you to love people i think the those who are mourning and and those who have recently passed um yeah softens the heart
1: yeah there's a part of the liturgy for um tahara that's um called mikhila Um, which means forgiveness, and you offer um, this sort of um, request for forgiveness at the beginning and at the end of doing Tahara. So you're essentially saying to the deceased, you're saying, look, we're going to do this as well as we can do it, but we're human and we're probably going to screw up. But we're going to do it with feeling and with the right intention, and we hope we do you honor. And at the end, you say essentially the same thing, but you say, look, we did screw up. We didn't do this perfectly. We hope we didn't cause any offense and um, just know that we did it with the right intention and to the best of our abilities. And to me, that is possibly the most profound spiritual act because it's saying we're human, we're mortal, we're here, um, we're going to do the best we can and and all we can really do is try and find the right intention, the right, um, it's called Kavanah in Hebrew, Um, the right Kavanah. um, To me that, that sums it up.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's relating to the, to the uh, liturgy for the dead, but it seems like uh, it has sort of a, a wider spiritual significance too, where you can think of that as almost your approach to life. Um, it's like, I can imagine if an infant could say, uh, at the beginning of his life, like, look, I'm going to try to do this my best I can, but I'm going to screw it up. And then if you could say on your deathbed, I tried, um, like that would be, uh, like, I mean, that, that's kind of my, would be my statement on, on my life as well. Like I'm, all I can do is try to have the the right kavana. um,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: And it does
1: um you know, it's a you're saying it to the deceased, but you're also saying it to the other people in the room mm. and you're saying it to everyone who has died in, you know, in in the history of humanity. Um and you're saying it to everyone who who is going to die. Um so
0: which is all of us.
1: Which is which they say anyway yeah, is they all say, so
0: far yeah <laughs> so um Statistically so yeah that's uh,
1: that's important
0: yeah it's very profound um i have a couple of uh potentially um odd questions can i can i throw a lob a couple your way yeah all right uh one is uh uh, so you grew up Christian. Uh do you still have any thoughts about this Jesus guy? Like how what is it what do you think <laughs> about him?
1: It's funny, I was actually thinking about that um while we were talking. Um in the conversation about Hasidism, I actually think that Jesus was a proto-Hasid. Um there's really nothing in in the teachings that is not um you know except for the question of um whether jesus actually was the son of god or pre- or presented himself as the son of god i choose to think that's a later interpretation and that he uh, that he probably I mean, in the sense that we are all, um, you know, children of God, um, you know, perhaps that, but I, I guess I don't feel like that's a central part of the teaching, uh, to me. And, and that's, um, that's entirely, um, you know, it's probably, you know, that is probably an eccentric, uh, take, but, um. I grew the church that I I grew up in is um connected with a seminary called the San Francisco uh theological seminary, which was kind of the more left leaning of the Presbyterian seminaries.
0: You're you're uh, telling me that the San Francisco seminary was a more left leaning one? <laughs> you're surprised about that? <laughs> yeah, shocked, completely shocked. Um
1: It wasn't actually in San Francisco, but, uh, but still, yeah. Um, So um, there were a number of fairly radical professors uh, in, in the seminary who also went to the church that I grew up in. And one of them in particular, um, you know, he, he can, contended that he didn't think that Jesus was the um, the son of god it was Jesus was a person um and that that was metaphorical so i think when i look at the teachings of of Jesus as i understand them they are a kind of liberation theology. They are very much in line with, um, the early Hasidic masters in terms of, you know, their, um, their teachings. Um, so I really don't see any inherent break. Um, you know, in Judaism, we wouldn't say that he was the Messiah, but, um, but as a teacher, he was, in my estimation, fully within the tradition.
0: So, so there's uh, been a few people like Thomas Jefferson who have, uh, you know, they, they cut out the miracles and the claims to divinity uh, from the gospels and they made like a sayings of Christ uh, or sayings of Jesus um, like book because uh, he found value in the, in like the teachings of Jesus, even though he, he didn't believe in, the divinity of jesus and i guess that would be kind of more uh compatible with your take where you see his teachings as being in like the line of jewish thought um but you're, you're not uh so you're 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 rejecting the the claims to divine status that that are made in the gospels
1: right my uh my you know your your uh your listeners may uh, balk at this
0: but um I think most of my listeners are agnostics at this point oh okay um, well I quite think, a few Christians too
1: I think um, the idea of the divinity of Christ comes more is more apocryphal. it um, really comes from Paul <clears throat> who I think um, was interested in establishing um, a church, a religion um I don't know that I think that Jesus was looking to establish a religion. So I think it, it was more the uh, apostles and later um, that, you know, kind of, kind of crafted it into, um, you know, it was important to have that element of faith. Um, And I think there was uh, an attempt to make of Jesus a kind of magical being. Um, I don't know that he uh, would have presented himself that way. Um, much of what the teaching to me uh, is made up of is uh, not pragmatic exactly, but is, is, um, It's about how to live in the world. It's not about uh, it's not really about the afterlife. It's not really about um, Like Judaism, it's very focused on ethics and on how
0: you how how to live uh, a good life in the world and my favorite part of um, the New Testament uh, as we Christians call it is uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew Uh, chapters five through seven, uh, which is very much sort of a mystical morality. Like he's describing a moral code that is sort of so advanced that humans can't really follow it. Um, But it's supposed to point you towards like how someone who's deeply in touch with God like would act. Um, Like it's showing you the perfect standard, like loving those who hate you, uh, turning the other cheek, um, doing good in private, never in public. Don't let people know about the good that you do. It's like all these things that cut against a, a lot of our instincts um but also cause a lot of problems so you almost have to be a mystic or have like some faith in the divine to be able to act that way um mm-hmm. and, I, and i don't think people actually can uh fully live out the sermon on the Mount. It's too it's too radical um but it is confrontational um and i think it's supposed to be uh wrestled with um yeah. but that's like an example of like to me you want to say, like, what two chapters of the New Testament are like iconically New Testament? I would say, you know, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I guess it's three chapters, uh, and, and uh, it's the teachings of, of Christ, and uh, and yeah, I think they're um, it's very concerned with like how we live in the world. Um, a lot of a lot of what Jesus is that. Um, I mean, I, I think it's, that's a, that's a good answer for a Jewish person to, to give <laughs> to my, my question. Uh, well, there are
1: elements of, uh, you know, besides the just general ethical system, the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself is, um, does show up in the Talmud as well. Um, I think it's uh, Rabbi uh, Hillel who, who essentially says, if you're going to do any, you know, yes, there's 613 um, commandments, <laughs> mitzvot um there is 613 but if you're going to do any of them there's there's one that you need to um focus on and that's um to to essentially treat others the way you would want to be treated and that's you know i mean again obviously that is in line with
0: christ's teachings jesus's teachings so um one other oddball question if you're up for it Sure. Okay. You live in Beacon, New York. Yeah. Uh, it's the home of uh, Alex Gray's uh, psychedelic temple. Oh right. Yeah. Um, now I have some spiritually sensitive friends uh, who feel like that's a, a very dark place, and they, they don't like going there. Um, but I, I'm, I guess I have a two part question. Uh, one, any thoughts you have on psychedelic temples, uh, if any, uh, or and yeah. two, uh, do you believe? that there are any dark spiritual forces in the world and how do you relate to them?
1: Wow. Wow. Um, I think that counts as two questions. It does count as two uh, questions. Yeah.
0: I couldn't figure out how to ask them separately.
1: um, Dark spiritual forces. uh, I don't believe in, you know, I certainly don't believe in Satan or, uh i th- i guess what i think is um, it's not so much that there are dark forces as there are places where um where there's a removal of the divine um uh, that's not really what i mean because I don't think you can remove the divine, but I think all right. In terms of human action, I think um, positive action is action that acknowledges. This was a curveball um, that acknowledges the um, the divine, or or attempts to act in in accordance with your understanding of what that is. Mm. Um, I guess if there is a, a dark, um, impulse, it's acting, uh, in, not in opposition, but without, um, without kind of consciousness of, or, um, with it without the intention to honor that, um, that divine spark. So uh, it's more about disrespect in a certain way or, uh, or about, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of the right way to put it.
0: Um, So I'm like the image that comes to my head is something like a highway, highway underpass where there's, homeless people living and uh they're living in squalor and maybe being neglected and um you know and it's that that feature of our society um is uh sort of not part of anyone's explicit design but it sort of comes out of like the way we've set up the world um and and there's a way that we can just kind of all take that as being natural and like pass them by and like allow people to suffer um and uh like like when we ignore the suffering of other humans it's it's um I, th- I think it's kind of uh like disrespecting the divine it's like desecrating uh an altar in a way um something like that
1: yeah you know <clears throat> since since we're since i'm uh you know being controversial um i will say that there is an idea in kabbalah um And again, not everybody would interpret it this way, but there's sort of a co-creative cycle um, that we actually, in our way, create the divine as the divine is creating us. Um, And this is one of the sort of, for me, poetic ideas that I get from that. And um, so our... process of liberating sparks, for instance, to use the analogy or the story that I was talking about earlier, um, that is a process of repair. Um, there's a Hebrew term tikkun, which is, means repair. Um, and by bringing those sparks to their source or returning them to their source, we're enacting repair and we're essentially rebuilding the divine and we're always doing that. We're constantly, um, we're part of a cycle um, where we're constantly replenishing, rebuilding the divine and the divine is constantly feeding and replenishing us. So um, I think the choice to engage with that cycle would be as close as i would be willing to come to um, defining the good and choosing not to participate in that cycle opting out is as close as i would want to come to defining i wouldn't call it evil but a kind of counter force to that act of tycoon. so essentially um we have the choice to participate in that tycoon. and um it's more a matter of that choice i think mm.
0: um yeah well thanks for fielding my difficult questions i uh, think
1: there's another half to I'm that well, there was
0: there was another half uh well do you have any thoughts on
1: uh so on psychedelic, psychedelic
0: temples psychedelic. <laughs> i mean because you're just you're at the epicenter for uh you know kind of a a, a significant faction of the neo-hippie mo- movement in the united states so i just thought i'd ask you
1: yeah yeah um i'm not that familiar with alex gray i remember when uh the when he was in um manhattan uh lower manhattan um But I didn't ever, I never actually went in, but there is actually a fairly strong, I think, um, Jewish psychedelic movement. Um, There was just, I don't remember what it's called now, but there was just a conference. um, And I, yeah, there's a, there's a... well one of the pioneers of psychedelics was uh, was jewish uh, um uh, richard alpert later ram Doss. um so there is uh, i think there's a tradition of um using substances to affect uh, religious experience um in judaism um if you look in the right places so I'm not an expert on this, but there are a lot of uh, references to, you know, um, mana is one, to um, to an interaction with substances um, to produce religious experience. Um, so I think I think I feel like any path that you can take. That attunes you to um, to the divine, um, shall we say, um, is a valid path. I think any path can also become a path that, that uh, you, you you want to avoid mistaking the path for the for what you're seeking. Um, I think that's always a danger um, to to mistake. The so means sort of, for you know, and I've I've been resisting saying that there is an endpoint, but you know, mistaking the means for the ends.
0: Yeah, um, it's like it would be that would look like getting um, stuck in psychedelia or like distracted by seeking more intense psychedelic um, experiences, and and like forgetting that there's like a instead instead of using them as 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 a means of inquiry into that which is beyond us something like that.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I'm a, I'm a musician also, and, um, I've often tried to define what psychedelic means in terms of music. I mean, we, you know, we think of the psychedelic era and, but I think it goes deep. Uh, and I think that a lot of things that we don't think of as psychedelic in music, um, in my definition are, and it's, uh, it's an open-endedness. It's a uh, questing, a a, um, a willing willingness to ask questions and be open to results that are not um, predictable. Um, it's a um, an involvement with um, with a multi-layered aspect of an experience the texture and the in in music the texture of the timbre um the way things layer and happen in um a spatial direction as well as a temporal direction um an openness to experience and uh accident and um you know all those things to me are part of the psychedelic experience and um and are the parts of that that i would encourage seekers to engage with um i think anything can become um you can become mired in um you know constantly striving for um stimulation as opposed to you know I don't want to get all puritanical about it and say you know it can only be you know um uh, involved in a quest for uh, the divine i i'm not trying to, to put it that way but i do think it can be a pathway to an to expanding your consciousness. And, um, and that's a good thing. So, um, I think that, uh, you know, it's interesting that there has been a return to, to,
0: um, psychedelic experience in recent years. Yeah. I think it's going to, um, rock the world a bit. Uh, I think it did rock the world in the sixties. Uh, and maybe there was a sense of, I don't, I don't know to what degree, um, it was uh responsible for it, but there was a sense by the 70s that things were spiraling out of control um and people clamped down on the government can't clamp down on psychedelics. Um and, and now, like, like I said, I don't know what to, to what extent that was uh political radicalism or the Vietnam War or the Cold War, these other sources of anxiety um that that caused uh the government to clamp down but I do think we're entering the second psychedelic age where there's a reopening. Um, It's sort of coming out in a more controlled way uh, than it was in the early days. Like we're having, you know, psychedelic psychotherapy start to be legalized across the United States where it's sort of an institutionalized um, psychedelic experience. Um, But, but, but also a lot of illegal and underground usage. Um, And so I think it's going to certainly change culture again. Um, in ways that are hard to predict uh, and uh, we'll see if we get to a- another point where we feel like we have too much and we move the other way or or if lacking those other stressors of the war and um, you know the radical left that we um, manage to uh, integrate it more wholly into society without having to ban it um, but we're gonna we'll see
1: uh, yeah yeah um, no, I, you know, it's like <clears throat> when I, uh, when I was, uh, in college, I had a friend who, um, uh, was a, a tarot card reader and, um, you know, I didn't have a belief in some sort of magical efficacy of tarot cards, but what I did come away, she was amazing. She could, she nailed it. On many, many many uh, occasions, I came away feeling like um, she used it as a tool. She had a inherent empathy and intuition, um, and insight that just needed a vehicle to come out into the world. And the tarot deck was her vehicle for telling, uh, the stories around her and for, um, you know, for questioning. And she was very good at it. Um, I went to, uh, the, an astrologer once and I had the same feeling. She was, she was extremely insightful and, um, and, you know, it was a rich discussion. And I think, she just that was her means for investigating um the mystery of the world and you know organizing her experience in a in a meaningful way. So I think you know with Kabbalah it's a similar thing, it's a it's a beautiful Um, poetic system for trying to understand experience and trying to organize your response to the world, Uh, I think psychedelics can do the same thing. I think it's, um, it's a a pathway for uh, experiencing and organizing and thinking about how the world works. And I think any of those methods are great. Um, again, you don't want to get to the point where you're mired in it, um, and it's blocking your experience. <clears throat> but, um, I think anything that allows you to access, uh, meaning in the world is a good thing.
0: Well, Matt, uh, thank you for those thoughts. And we're, we're almost out of time. Uh, I, I just wonder if there's any, um, if there's any like last bit of, uh, advice that you would leave for, uh, spiritual seekers. Um, <laughs> like, uh, what, what would it be? Wow. I've never felt like, um,
1: I have anything to advise anyone about, um, there's a tradition in Judaism of writing ethical wills um, and an ethical will is essentially what you would want to leave the world. That isn't a material possession. It's, you know, it could be your advice to your children about how to live life. Um, It could be almost anything that you felt like you needed to leave that was um, immaterial. And, um, I thought, I've thought a lot about that and I've, I've taught classes in it. Um, <clears throat> and I've always been uncomfortable with the idea of leaving, um, a body of advice for anyone because I, I really don't have any faith that I have anything that I can pass on in that way. So what I decided was the ethical will for me would be, um, uh, collection of questions um it wouldn't be answers it would be these are the things i've wrestled with in my life um i may not have come to a conclusion about any of them i may not have any answers but just this is a record of the questions that i've asked and um i guess i don't have advice but i would just say um the questions that we ask i think are where life takes place and i would just encourage people to keep asking questions
0: sounds good well matt it's been a delightful conversation i've been i'm i'm thrilled to have it and uh looking forward to sharing this with people uh, thanks for joining me
1: yeah thank you